Hi, this is Dion Baig from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy. Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, episode 47. Hello and welcome to the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. We put this show together to inspire you and help you break through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. My name is Rob Brake and here with me is Sandy. I haven't had time to come up with anything. Okay. <laughs> nice. You're running out, eh? Running out I of, know. Uh, I'm, I'm really getting lazy. <laughs> I used to have something for you every time. Well, uh, yeah, excited to be here again, and uh, got another great guest coming up, so that's going to be cool here in the next few minutes. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, we have Dylan Lenz with us, and he is the founder of a really cool service for investors and landlords at Neighborly.co. And not only that, you know, he's a really bright guy who started a couple of successful companies and has a ton of real estate knowledge. So uh, thanks for being on the show, Dylan. Thanks, guys. Excited. It's awesome to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time. But first, we are going to talk about a couple of things, right, Sandy? Well, we got a few things to mention, as always. I want to recommend everyone jump over to our website, breakthroughraipodcast.ca. Uh, download our free report there. If you have, have a moment there, it's right on the sidebar. You can get free info from us on how to really create more freedom in your life. With, you know, Once you have all these rental properties, it can get a little hectic unless you're running the proper systems and models that'll help you with that. And Neighborly, obviously, is going to be a big help with that as well as we get into that today. And our, and our free report is called uh, The Seven Freedom Activators That You Can Trigger in Your Property Starting Right Now. And like Sandy said, that's over on our website, BreakthroughREIPodcast.ca. And yeah, of course, we want to recommend uh, people go over to iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes, jump over there and, and leave us a uh, a uh, review, a five star review, of course, would be would be awesome. Uh, we have a bunch of them on there now. We can always use some more, and it really helps us get this show out to more Canadians, more investors out there. And it, you know that helps us get more great guests on the show for you guys, and really help uh, help us bring some uh, awesome value to all the listeners. And like you said, Sandy, there are listeners all the way throughout Canada. We get emails from people out in BC, and I've actually gotten a couple of American. Uh, emails from Americans too, so yeah, we got some pretty cool listeners. And There's a lot of Americans <laughs> looking at Canada um, to invest for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We have 66 five star reviews now. Okay, so I am looking here, and we do have a couple of new reviews actually since last time. One, two, three, and they're not that long, so I'll read them. The first one is the first one says. Five stars, great way to understand the fundamentals of REI. And this one is by Logan Hermes. And he says, I am from Calgary, Calgary, Alberta, and I listen to the show while I am at work. 
I am considering many options to build wealth, and at 20 years old, I really find a lot of value in this podcast. Thanks for the hard work and bringing cool value to the listeners. Sometimes there is definitely a gap from a complete newbie to some of the content discussed, and I would love to hear more step-by-step process to become an investor. For example, how to get the initial capital for a duplex. Because most people already have a mortgage and uh, can't afford a rental property such as myself. Although I rent out shared accommodations and I do have some cash flow. Thanks guys and I look forward to listening to you guys. You know that is true and uh, I think one of our podcasts coming up is going to be with a new investor who's just finished their first duplex. I've been talking to him and he's got an interesting point of view. So uh, we'll be looking for that one in November I think. The next one is another five-star review. It says, A Wealth of Info by Nick Bowe. He says, I'm not currently an investor. However, I am doing my research and preparing to become one in the next year. This podcast has been tremendously helpful and resourceful so far. I look forward to putting some of it into practice. And the last one is by J-Rod888888888. <laughs> <laughs> and he says helping out a lot five stars this podcast is helping me a lot to understand the aspects of real estate investing thank you so much four exclamation points yeah those cool. are great uh, we really appreciate them and as we always say keep them rolling in really like to hear what you guys have to say it does sound like people are looking for uh, newbie stories so that'll definitely be something that we bring very soon cool yeah yeah and I guess the last thing before we really get into our interview with Dylan, and uh, I'm actually going to ask you guys both about this too, but I thought we'd sort of start a segment about building the power team because I know that's been uh, something that a lot of our guests have stressed, just how important that is. You know, when you're starting out as a real estate investor, you want to make sure that you have all the right people working with you. So usually you'll know a friend who's a real estate agent or a mortgage broker, but I don't necessarily know if they maybe they are the right person to work with but you shouldn't just take a person because you know them or they're your friend as the right person to help you build your real estate portfolio going forward you got to really pay attention to what that person's focus is and if they can really help you going forward with your goals and dreams and i think that um, an important first step is finding the right mortgage agent someone who understands investment properties and can help you set out for the long haul, you know, in accordance with your goals. Um, also begin to work with that broker before you start looking at properties so that you know what you can afford and the type of investment that's right for you. Uh, what do you guys think? What do you think, Sandy? Well, yeah, I mean, as realtors, of course, Rob, we, we say that all the time, right? People coming to us first, which is fine. It's just, it, it's, uh, we always are probably, at least I am usually referring them back to a mortgage broker pretty quickly just to make sure they're set up, right? You know, and, and so we can devise a plan together, but it's really the mortgage broker is going to look at the financials and all that and get a, get a real solid plan of action, right? For, you know, where you're at financially and if you need a, a six month year plan or however you need to plan it out to get to a point of being ready to buy something, you know, it's a mortgage broker who looks over all that. So I agree that would be the first place to go. Realtors are fine too. You know, we're always referring them back to the mortgage broker anyways, right? Well, I think that's a key to what you said there is that, you know, maybe they've heard of you or maybe they know you as the guy to help them out with investment properties. So you are able to help them or, or refer them to an, a mortgage broker that works well with you and understands investments, that's a good way to go too. Not to say don't reach out to agents, but they might be able to help you as long as you find the right agent. 
to work with the right mortgage broker. Is that uh, what do you think about that, Dylan? I totally agree. I think that you know having a strong mortgage broker in your corner is key to to getting not only your first property but your second and your third, specifically because you know the guys that are are the best at their job in terms of like the best mortgage brokers. They're not just going to give you like a a prepackaged version of, of of what you can do and what you should do. They're going to come up with really unique strategies and help you get in those properties. And I and they're really motivated to help you do that. And I think that. Um, you know, finding somebody that, that's a right fit that works with you, but also works for you is, is really important. Absolutely. And also, uh, we'd like to hear from you guys and see what you think about that. Maybe write into us at info at breakthroughreipodcast.ca. Let us know what you think. We'd really like to hear from you. So now let's get into our interview. Let's do it. All right. All right. So today on the show, we've got, uh, as you've already heard, Dylan Lentz, who is the founder and CEO of Neighborly. Is a real estate technology company based in Toronto, Ontario. And Dylan leverages his technical abilities in computer science and product design alongside his diverse experiences in operations, sales, and marketing to create outstanding digital products. Uh, previously, Dylan built and sold two companies in technology and finance, and he studied computer science and sociology at the University of British Columbia. So really excited again to have you on, Dylan, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, welcome. So let's just start out talking about the state of the rental market right now. I, I know that you know a lot about it, so let's talk about e maybe an even more broad Canadian view, and then maybe, I guess, locally here in Toronto, GTA area after that. Yeah, I think right now uh, the Canadian economy and the Canadian rental market has probably never been more diverse in terms of uh, incredible highs and lows. You know, we see Toronto and Vancouver booming. Meanwhile, we see what's going on in Alberta and uh, the communities that are supported by Alberta and the effect that that's having on the local economies, the rental markets and the, the landlords that operate there. You know, one of the things that we see specifically is that, you know, what's going on with the Alberta oil sands and the slowdown in the, the oil economy affecting communities like Halifax, Nova Scotia and Kelowna, British Columbia that have been really supported by the workers that were flying out from those locations to Fort McMurray and, and northern Alberta. And, and that's bringing a, a huge change in terms of quality of tenants. We see a lot of people that used to be able to afford rental properties, unable to afford those rental properties anymore because they've been laid off. Um, we see a lot of people uh, as landlords that are uh, accepting tenants that they probably would not have accepted previously when the market was a little bit tighter. And, you know, we've seen rental rental rates uh, declining. My sister is a graduate student at the University of Calgary right now, and uh, everybody she knows is renegotiating their rent down because the the, the rental rates are, uh, you know, declining uh, across the board, even in large cities like Calgary, which is really interesting. And then, you know, you see this cross-reference of what's going on in Toronto and Vancouver, where, you know, the markets are uh, you know, superficially high, you know, young people and, and the typical rental demographic can't necessarily afford places in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver anymore. And, and it's kind of creating this inflation in, in rent prices that doesn't necessarily translate to a, an equal growth in the economy. Do you have a little more insight about what the effects of what's going on in Alberta? What does that do to the rental economy in the places where those people are coming from, like uh, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, those areas? Well, so a lot of people were doing that like two weeks in, two weeks out, 
type of thing earlier on. And a lot of those people have decided to move closer to work. So they're living in one location rather than two. It's not necessarily that they're directly associated with the oil industry, but all the industries that were fueled by oil money are starting to get affected. So what we see is People that were in like the service industry in Kelowna, BC are not getting, making as much money in tips. The tourism industry in Kelowna, BC has, has taken a bit of a hit because we're, they're not seeing that Alberta oil money come in. And, and this is the same thing that we see, you know, on the East Coast where a lot of people were flying out to northern Alberta. You know, the, the money that they were spending domestically when they came home for those two weeks is not getting spent anymore. And that's affecting the entire economy locally. And uh, I guess even probably the air travel industry and all of that stuff from them traveling back and forth because there is a significant amount of people that do that. Absolutely. And and I think big industries like, you know, the airlines and a lot of these like major companies, the, the slowdown that you're seeing with them are actually, you know, creating this kind of trickle down economic effect where jobs get cut there, which means that those people are spending less money, which everybody's kind of tightening their belt. When they tighten their belt that, you know, you're not spending as much money at the grocery store, you're not spending as much money um, on these, you know, little perks, and and this isn't really affecting, or or it's it's affecting large scale companies a lot more. But what what we really see is how it's actually affecting, you know, individuals, especially individuals that were kind of on the fringe, people that were, you know, living paycheck to paycheck. That extra two hundred dollars in tip money or that extra two shifts at the at the store um, aren't coming in anymore, and then that's affecting the evictions, uh, that's affecting defaults, late rent payments, everything. Um, and it's really interesting to start to see this on like this macroeconomic scale. And, and that's stuff that we track at Neighborly. And what about our local market here then? The bubble, I guess, that we're in right now. Yeah, so so Toronto and Vancouver are kind of like the complete opposite. And it's really interesting. You know, we see so many people coming in. Uh, for university, we see so many people from other countries coming to Canada that it's really just driving so much growth. And then on top of it, you see a lot of people that are coming from these smaller towns and they're moving to cities because there is more economic opportunity here. And so the, the rent rates have gone up. But what we've seen is, especially with, you know, foreign buyers coming in from out of the country, there's, there's excess demand on the market with like a lower amount of supply. So the housing prices have shot up. And a lot of these places, especially in Vancouver, people aren't actually living in these properties. They're bought on speculation that the, the property price is going to continue to increase. And the rent cost has not really increased in the same stride as the housing price, right? You know, if you look at like the ideal income property, the ideal income property, I think they say should be renting for about 1% of the, uh, the house price, right? Or at least that's what it is in the United States. But if you're in downtown Toronto, you know, you have $600,000 condos that are renting for $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. And and what's happening is that, you know, if if the housing market continues to increase, then that loss that the landlord's making between the mortgage and, and the rent um, is OK because they're making enough money. But if that ever decreases, then it's a terrifying thought for a lot of people, because, you know, a lot of these property, you know, a lot of these landlords now don't necessarily have the resources to be carrying a second mortgage for six thousand dollars a month uh, for any extended period of time. Yeah, and I guess that is the whole point of uh, what we try to drive home here is not to buy property on speculation and to um, more or, or appreciation. I guess that's a good thing, but always make sure that the property makes sense from day one. 
Exactly. And you know what, what we also see is just this huge amount of growth in, in surrounding regions, areas just outside of Vancouver and Toronto, you know, like the Durham region, I know has experienced tremendous growth and reasonably so, you know, Toronto is a world class city. It's really becoming, you know, one of those top 10 cities globally. And as it continues to develop, you know, you start to see it reflect the housing prices that you would see in a place like Manhattan. That's something that we, we think is, is really interesting because, you know, unlike, uh, unlike Vancouver uh, or Calgary, where there's kind of like this superficial influx, Toronto really has a huge amount of infrastructure, manufacturing, economic activity that actually does support and justify a lot of the housing prices. Well, I mean, I have mixed emotions about it out this way, but it's it certainly doesn't seem to be slowing down right now anyway. Well, I mean, um, the, and I think this is kind of what we were kind of hitting on is that what we're we're not seeing the economic growth on a personal level that we're seeing in terms of the housing market yet. But, and and that's where it needs to catch up. You know, Mm -hmm. people in downtown Toronto need to start making the wages that you see people making in, in, in New York city and in Chicago and stuff like that. And that's where there's that big disconnect. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I live downtown Toronto and you can, you can buy a brownstone in a really nice neighborhood, just a few blocks from, from the subway around the university of Toronto for, you know, $2.4 million. If you were going to do something like that in Brooklyn, New York, it would be $8 million US. Mm. And I, I think that that actually isn't incredibly unreasonable. I think it's just kind of caught everybody off guard how fast it's grown. To make that comparison is one thing, but I think that take, for example, the prices of semi-detached houses out here in Oshawa, where I am, and I mean, they're, they're pushing upwards of like four hundred grand now, where where that just seems absolutely insane to most people, you can always use that comparison when go well, you know, go look in Toronto and you'll find six or seven hundred thousand dollars semis that are exactly the same as these ones out here. Doesn't necessarily make it feasible, I guess. I don't know. I well, I think that this is one of the things that a lot of people, especially in Canada, and you know, this is something we study uh, as a company, and, and I and I I know that there's there's differing opinions on this, but you know, I think in North America we've been especially privileged to see low housing prices for so long. Um, you know, there's times where it goes really really high, and certain markets really take off, but on the whole, you know, it's it's not an uncommon dream for a Canadian or an American to to own a home in their lifetime. But if you go and look at Europe, like Germany, it's one of the most successful economies globally. 53% of their citizens rent. And that's all the way into like their, their 50s and 60s. It's not just this small thing that happens in their early 20s and early 30s. And then if you look at like all of their major cities, it's like 73, 75% people renting. Um, and so what happens is when you see an economy start to really succeed, the number of homeowners in a lot of cases actually declines and people start renting. And, you know, I think that that's, uh, I think that's something that we're going to start to see is that, that people are going to start renting more, that home ownership is, is going to be a luxury. And that, um, you know, like if you look at the United States back in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, you had 51% of people in rental housing. And it was, it was insane. Owning a home was, was not an incredibly common thing, but the economy was doing incredibly well. People were happy. It was great prosperity. And I think that's kind of what we're, we're hoping to see that, that, you know, home ownership is a great thing, but renting is going to become a more, uh, accepted alternative. Uh, at least that's, you know, that's, that's some of the theories around the, the economics that are going on. 
It'd be interesting to find out how many of those people in the European market that you were talking about actually uh, own a rental property but rent their principal residence. I wonder if the ratio is higher there than here. Because, you know, that is the rich dad school of thought. To start is. out, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I love hearing that, though, because that's what I've been, I've been battling with some Hamiltonian people over that this for so long. Just nobody can understand the prices, right? And when you make that comparison, it just, it totally puts it into perspective. You know, I, I think that's one of the things, too, that we have to also start to consider is that, you know, social capital in 2016 has dramatically changed. And I think that there's, there's a mentality around, you know, people that are used to things that the way they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, and, you know, they're a little bit, uncomfortable or a little bit shocked by how rapidly things are changing and how we're progressing. And one of those things is renting. So, you know, I look, I always compare myself to my parents um, and I have owned real estate and, and I have had rental properties and stuff like that. So I think I'm a bit of a, you know, a unique person there, but in terms of like my typical consumption and typical people that are consuming millennials that are consuming products now, it, it's really focused on experience based consumption. So they want to live in small functional housing, usually in a big city. They want to spend their extra money not on owning a car, but on you know being able to take Ubers, being able to go out to interesting meals, travel to interesting places, um, and and their social capital is their Instagram account. And you juxtapose that with my parents' generation, which is having a house in the suburbs, two cars in the driveway, and a boat. And the way that we consume and the way that we value things has has changed a little bit. And I think that in a lot of ways that's a good thing. And so I think that there, you're you know you're going to see this huge growth in in rental housing. It's going to be you know, a lot more condos, you're going to see a lot more rental apartments and home ownership, um, you know, actually having a detached house is going to become much more of a luxury over the next 25 years. Okay, well, uh, believe it or not, we're going to move on to question two now. <laughs> that was really interesting. That was a good conversation. Yeah, that was great. Um, now, you mentioned tenants actually negotiating their rent down in certain markets. And uh, I, I believe that's a direct correlation with what the with the next question. Um, that is, you know, what things do landlords do wrong when it comes to tenant relations? Because I can't imagine myself letting my tenants negotiate the price down with me, but I'm not in that market. But that would be, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't want to, I'm not looking forward to that day. Well, you know, I think it, I think it depends on the tenant, right? You know, I, I, I I live downtown Toronto. I negotiate my rent, and that's because I'm willing to take a two-year lease. And I think that you know, I think that's a big thing that that landlords need to to understand too. Is you know, you want to make the exception. You want to make exceptions for the right people. You know, if the tenant wants to stay longer and and everything with them checks out, you do the tenant tenant check and and everything is is good with them. Then you know, you want to make sure that you build that relationship and that they they stay long term. So I mean, some of the things that we see um, and that we talk to a lot of property managers and landlords about is uh, in terms of tenant relations specifically is just kind of this nickel and dime attitude. You know, I know that there's, there's a business behind your rental property. I know that you want to get as much money out of that property as possible. Um, but you know, we see some things that the tenants complain about. Um, and what it really does is it just affects the tenant's ability to treat the property like it's their own home. Um, you know, because they're getting constantly reminded about th that it's not their own home. So one of those things that, you know, I mean, this is this is one of the things that I think is kind of ridiculous, but uh, coin-operated laundry in a private residence, um, like when you have a single-family home and the landlord puts coin-operated laundry in in the house, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I, I kind of cringe at just because, you know, if you're trying to get people to, to come in and, and 
stay long term and, and treat it like their own home, uh, you know, you kind of have to think about you have to put yourself in their shoes. And as a landlord, when's the last time that you had to go to the corner store, make change for a five, come back and be able to wash your towels? Um, you know, there's that there's that kind of thing. And I think the mentality around that of trying to scrape every single dollar out of your rental property, um, you know, it, it really it really can start to affect the relationship that you have with the tenant. I guess that's a good point. Let me ask you, how do you think that it affects that same sort of feeling of it being your own home if you're actually sharing laundry anyway? What do you mean if you're sharing laundry? Well, like I, I have, like basically all I have is duplexes. So a, a few a few of those have a common area with the laundry. None of mine are coin operated, by the way, but I'm just saying that in those circumstances where they're sharing laundry anyway with somebody else living in the same house, it is kind of taking away from that feeling to begin with, is it not? It's user experience, right? The reason that we want to have laundry in our house is because we want to be able to not have to go to a laundromat. But, you know, having to make sure that we have coins to be able to do it, you know, that that's it's a different thing. Uh, you know, I mean, sharing spaces, I also think it comes down to demographic, right? You know, if you're dealing with with university age students or if you're or if you're dealing with, uh, you know, younger people, then they're probably going to make a lot of concessions. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to trying to rent out a single family home and, you know, you're you're taking away a lot of those luxuries of home, um, I think that you're starting to affect uh people's ability and desire to to actually engage and invest themselves into the property so you're sort of saying that like sort of subconsciously that's a that's a point of degradation almost i think in some ways it is i think it's it kind of kills you know i mean i'm a user experience product guy you know by trade so so i think that i mean that obviously just for me it would kill user experience but you know when we look at the best tenants the the really really you know exceptional tenants that landlords love that have had no issues, that always pay their rent on time. It's the people that invest in the property, that when something is broken, they're going to fix it themselves. And then, you know, maybe they'll build, they'll tell the landlord, oh, well, I replaced this um, because it was broken, and they'll send the receipt. But they're going to go and do it themselves because they treat the property like it's their own. And if you can find those tenants as a landlord, you're going to be much better off financially. You're going to be much better off uh, mentally. Your stress levels are going to be down because you know your property's in good hands. And if you're you know, if you compare that with, you know, a, a group of tenants that, that, you know, call you every, every two days to change a light bulb, or, um, I think you're setting yourself up for that as a landlord. When, when, you know, the, when you put coin operated laundries in, or when you put, you know, like little things that, that, that make the tenant, that take away the, the tenant's ability to do something for themselves, uh, or in some way marginalize the tenant's ability to call that place their own. I think that you're creating a barrier and you're also creating a, a potential breaking point or a potential stress point for yourself where you're going to have to do more maintenance. And so that's that kind of stuff that, that I see, you know, and the same thing with like, you know, and the, the laundry is one thing, but also, you know, trying to get that extra $25 a month out of the rent. You know, if somebody, if, if, a, if a great tenant comes in, they say, well, you know, would you include, uh, would you include lawn care or something like that? Right. Or, yeah, you know, some something that's like fairly fairly small, or or asking you to kind of do something just a little bit above and beyond as a landlord. Sometimes it's worth doing it, even if it's an additional cost to you of say fifty or a hundred dollars a month, if, if it's the right tenant. And I think that that I, I think it's a give and take relationship, and I I think that 
especially as as you know you see places in Alberta and and places uh, you know uh, across the country that are starting to see a bit of a slowdown in terms of the rental market. You know, you're going to want to make those exceptions for the right people, and and being willing to do that, I think it shows something to the tenant that they want to reciprocate because most people are good people and they want to. You know, they want to treat your property with respect. They want to live there comfortably and, and happily. And I think that as a landlord, you want to be able to, to take down as many barriers as possible to let them do that while still having a business. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think this is like my last comment on that. I know it's question two and, and we're going into <laughs> it, but uh, I think what it really comes down to is customer service. It, it, is, it is a business and the tenant is your customer, even though that, you know, it is a very tight market and all that kind of stuff. I think that there still needs to be a certain level of customer service uh, that goes into it. And, and you need to respect yourself, your property, and your business enough to, to make sure that you take ownership for that. Awesome. And uh, so I guess continuing on from that, then a lot of people have uh, some struggles with tenants. And and because of that, they maybe they want to evict them or, or find a way to deal with that. Do you have some suggestions on how... People can evict tenants or or deal with them when they are bad. Absolutely. So, I mean, my entire company started because of my own eviction process. I had a really bad tenant. You know that that's why the company exists. So, the thing that I've learned from it is, first of all, keep a record of everything, every interaction you have with them. Write it down. Make sure that your primary mode of communication is text message or email, and save those. And in those emails and text messages, make sure you don't lose your cool. Make sure that you know you keep it very professional, that you maintain that level of professionalism so that if you ever have to show those text messages and emails to somebody else to prove what's going on, you know, that you don't put anything uh, you don't you don't make them ever question that you were you were anything less than professional. I think the other thing too that like just the biggest tip, like there's the process changes from province to province. The the actual advice on you know how to deal with the the tenancy bureaus and the eviction process changes. My advice is is maybe get somebody like a paralegal to help you with the process. Don't go through the process yourself, and also expect it to take longer than than you want it to. Most landlords think they can get the tenant out within 30 days, but there's a lot of ways the tenants can stay longer. My tenants, I did everything correct in terms of filing stuff and putting notices up and and all that and. You know, it still took me it took me three months to evict my tenant, and I mean that's a horror story. You hope hopefully the tenant's just gonna move out or something like that. But but you know, having patience and and keeping your cool and and making sure you record everything, I think are the big three. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people do think it's a pretty quick process, and sometimes sometimes it can take longer. And um, and I do know of a few people that have had it take even longer than three months. Up to six months, I've heard of. Oh yeah, so. and you know, I think, and and part of that too, along the way, you know, if it does take three months, you're going to want to negotiate with them. You're going to want to try and pay them to leave. You're going to want to try and do all these things. And you know, in reality, the best way is just let the legal system handle it. Do everything that you should do legally. Don't try and you know pay them five thousand dollars to get out early. Don't try and and do that kind of stuff. I've I've tried to do that stuff and it doesn't work. It usually just backfires on you and 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 causes more stress than it's worth. Than it's worth. Okay, here's a quick question for you that's sort of off to the side. How would you handle it if let's say I'm going at a personal level here, okay? So, we've got some tenants where they don't necessarily pay on time very often 
quite often they don't pay on time. So it's gotten to the point where it's gone to the landlord-tenant board, and right now I'm in a position where I can have them evicted by the sheriff. They've asked for a few days, so we're giving it to them. That's, I mean, a lot of people would tell me not to even do that. I think as as far as investors go would say, no, they've had their chance. They had lots of notice. They've had time to catch up and they're not. Uh, so why would you wait any longer? What's your opinion on that? There's, so uh, there's two answers to this question. The first, the first answer is like the, the answer that I want to say, which is probably more reactionary. And it's, I would agree with the investors. They've had enough time. Get them out of there as soon as you, as soon as you can. You know, it, this is a business, and and you know they're your customer. And I, I think that that relationship, that transaction of being a tenant and being a landlord, is about mutual respect. If they don't show you respect, then uh, you know, or if you don't show them respect, and you've given them every opportunity to, then there's a point where you need to dissolve the relationship, and you need to, uh, you know, take the take the business approach: fire fast, hire slowly. Um, same thing with tenants. On the other hand, I've I've done that where I've evicted tenants and told them to basically get out the day that they're, the order says that they're supposed to get out. And I usually end up going into the property and finding about you know two truckloads of garbage and property damage and nothing's cleaned up. So. Sometimes giving, you know, some, so I guess what my real answer would be is maybe give them the extra two days before you stress yourself out. And, you know, hopefully you're going to save yourself two trips to the dump and, <laughs> and, you know, $500 in cleaning fees. Um, cause that's really what it is. They got nothing left to lose and it's all kind of wrapped up. See, yeah, I agree with you in a way, and here's the and and here's where the uh, sort of divide is, right? I have a couple of properties that I own by myself, and then I have a couple of properties that I own with uh, joint venture partners, and I am responsible for the management of those places. So when it comes to stuff like this, where my partners would expect, I believe that they expect me to follow the procedures when the procedures call for action. Mm-hmm. So whereas I myself would probably agree with you, I would say, okay, I'm going to give them a couple more days because of all the reasons that you said, right? And yeah, some people do go through hard times and I mean, it's not, my business shouldn't suffer because of their hard time. I agree, but what's two days and you can carry out the eviction after the two days if they aren't caught up. But on the other side, if you've got partners, you want to show them that you're proactive and you're doing all the right kind of things. And so getting a little personal, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, you know, and, and it's it's I think it's really situational, right? You know, if you've got I, I personally don't believe that anybody doesn't want to pay their rent. I think that if people could pay their rent, they would pay their rent. But there's things that happen outside of people's control that that limits that. So. I think that you need to identify, I mean, it's situational, you know, maybe giving them an extra day or an extra two days to make sure that they get all their stuff, that's fine. You know, if it's right near the end of the month and you want new tenants to come in, you already have new tenants, then that's a very different story. You know, maybe sometimes there's a way to mitigate it where, like, what is the reason for it? What's the reason that they're not able to get out early? Well, the new property is unavailable. Well, you know, that's the time where maybe you as the the property manager or the owner want to say, well, you know what, I'll pay for your, your U-Haul for an extra day. It's an extra 200 bucks. 
and that way you know you can still get your stuff out but but you know you you don't have to to deal with that cost or something like that or mm-hmm. or you know maybe dropping off you know going and and buying fifty dollars worth of cardboard boxes from from Home Depot dropping them off and and you know saying I just wanted to give you guys these you can to help out or or giving them garbage bags or giving them the supplies they need to to basically make your life as easy as possible and and you know I think that that at the end. Even though the process usually at that point, you know, you're not talking to them. It's a very high stress situation. Um, sometimes that kind of breaks the ice, and it actually shows a little bit of, of uh, you know, humility and, and and humanism, and and hopefully they'll be reciprocal to it, and they're going to treat your property with respect when they leave. But I think it's completely situational, and and you as the the landlord or the you know the business owner, you need to make that decision about your business and and based on what you know of the situation. Yeah, it's definitely not always cut and dry. And I think you made a good point there about respect. I mean, by by the point where you're trying to evict the tenants, you will probably know whether it's because they've had a some kind of a financial hardship or whether it's because of lack of respect, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and then even like size of the property changes too. You know, if they're moving out of a four bedroom house, you know, sometimes that's a little and, and it's full and they've got their kids there. That's a very different situation than than moving out of a of a you know one bedroom basement suite, mm. and and you know I, I think that like sometimes that 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 kind of goes into the that goes into the equation too. So what, uh, Dylan, what are some other common mistakes? We talked a lot about mistakes already here a bit, but any other common mistakes that you see landlords making? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing, I mean, that we see, because I mean, not to like pitch the company, but but not screening te- tenants effectively at the beginning of the relationship. You know, that's one of the things we talk about the most at our company is you're making a business decision that let's say the rent is $1,500 a month. Well, that's an $18,000 business decision that you're making after knowing somebody for usually 10 minutes. So spending the $25 or, you know, to, to do a proper screening through a company like Neighborly or whatever provider you want to go through um, you know, I think that's really worth it. I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's better than an insurance policy. It, it, you know, our company can predict with like 98% accuracy, the quality of a tenant. And, and I think that that's a really important thing. So screening the tenant effectively at the get go, that's kind of the keystone problem. You get a good tenant in, you don't really need to worry about payments. You don't really need to worry about repairs, all that kind of stuff, because usually that good tenant is going to, to make your life easier when you're dealing with all these other things. But if you get that, that tenant wrong at the beginning, all the other stuff just seems to be amplified. All the problems you have seem to be amplified. Um, you know, Moving outside of just tenant screening itself, I think that not having correct legal documents, um, asking illegal questions during the interview process, that's something we see a lot of. Um, and then neglecting the tenant and neglecting their property, treating the, the property like it's a hobby instead of treating it like it's a business and that it, it is a responsibility, I think that's a big thing too. Mm-hmm. So now on the other side of that then, do you have any tips for new landlords? Well, I think I think for new landlords, and this is something that I wish I had done, and as a new landlord, I was trying to like make my money go as far as possible with the amount of money I had. Um, but I think the big thing was hiring a property manager for that first year or the first two years, I think can be really valuable. Um, you know, if they do charge you one month's rent or if it is a monthly fee or whatever it is, I think it's worth it because they're going to educate you a lot. And, you know, you're going, the first two years, I think is when you make the most mistakes as a new landlord. 
So, so having somebody who has that industry experience and has that expertise, I think can be incredibly valuable and I think it's worth it. You know, if you still don't want to do that, then I think doing your research, creating a business plan, creating a strategy for your property is incredibly important. You know, what does your ideal tenant look like? You know, how are you going to be handling maintenance calls? Who is, who is your expert team uh, that's going to help you manage this property? And, and having that in place, I think, needs to, needs to be a key. And I see landlords with 20 years' experience who don't really have it. They kind of, you know, shoot from the hip still. And, and I think that that's why, you know, you see a lot of people make those mistakes. And, you know, that's why you see people who, who still get really bad tenants consistently, um, you know, 10 years into their business. So we're going to shift gears a little bit here now. And um, what what is what are some uh, financial strategies to help make your first rental a success, and how to get your pro- uh, second one faster? So I bought my first investment property when I was 22, which is pretty young, you know. And I think like just the financial steps you need to take to get there, you know. I think usually it's built into most people. I grew up in a family that invested in real estate. When we used to go on car trips, we used to listen to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and we used to play cash flow on family nights. So um, I I think that that was kind of ingrained. Um, If it hasn't been ingrained, you probably should go buy those games and you should listen to those, those things first. You know, just living below your means. I think that's like the secret to wealth in general is just, you know, make sure that you have a very low burn rate personally. You know, you need to set goals. And, and when you, when you're looking at investing in real estate, you know, I think it's important to delay personal home ownership as long as possible. Um, and you know, our strategy, uh, my wife and I, when we bought our first property, was to basically take. We lived in a thousand dollar a month apartment. We took our money uh, that we had saved up, and and we invested into a, a, a split level. Well, it was a do. It wasn't a duplex. It was a. There's an upstairs unit, and then we had a basement suite. And our plan was we're not going to live upstairs. We're going to live in the basement suite. And that was how we we got our first property. And so we lived in the basement suite. We had somebody upstairs paying our mortgage. And when you want to get to your second property, you do that for a year and a half. And you get that 20% again by, by just, you know, saving what you can and living within your means. And, you know, within a, a three-year period of time between saving and living frugally, you know, you can have upwards of 800 to a million dollars worth of real estate and, and four doors under management. Um, so that was, you know, I, I think that's the, the big thing, um, you know, learning and educating yourself first and foremost, and then just making, making a goal, making a budget, sticking to it. Um, in terms of, you know, strategies kind of tying this back to what we were talking about, that power team at the beginning, um, early on, we met an exceptional mortgage broker out in British Columbia. Uh, that's where we had our first property. And, you know, he, I was self-employed. I had my own business. Um, usually that takes like two years to be able to, to, to verify income. Um, you know, but he, he kind of helped us develop a strategy that would, would not get around that, but, but make us, uh, attractive to, to the lenders. So, um, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that I think, um, is important. And the other thing I think you have to remember with real estate in general is just that, um, it's not that, that get rich quick approach to, to creating wealth, that it does take time. And, you know, that fear of missing out because the Vancouver market's hot or the Toronto market's really hot and that somebody made 18% last year in Oshawa, you shouldn't be thinking about that. There's ups and downs to the market and you need to be thinking about the long term and how you want to be able to stick this out for the next 25 years. It's a marathon. 
So for preparing yourself mentally and building that strategy, I think is important. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's pretty common, especially on this podcast, the theme of investing in second unit. <clears throat> we talk about that quite a bit. And it seems to be a good strategy that works well for first time investors to find something where you can live in one of the units, whether it's the basement or not, although that one does make more sense financially. But if you're in the position where you've got some kids or whatever, and that doesn't quite work out, even living on the top floor makes a lot of sense too. Mm-hmm. That, that is really one of the best strategies to get yourself going, I think. Yeah. And also just, you know, trying to do as much as you can yourself, you know, if it's painting or, or, you know, minor, minor changes to the property, you know, do as much as you can yourself, put, put the elbow grease in, you know, don't do your own electrical and your own plumbing work. I don't recommend <laughs> that at all. Um, but, uh, you know, if it's like simple stuff, when you do updating, try and do most of it yourself and, and, you know, take a course or, or watch YouTube videos and, and figure out how you can save yourself a bit of money there. Yeah, Sandy and I have kind of had that debate as well before. I think it might, uh, in my circumstance... Doing, the, doing our own electrical? Do, well, no, just doing our own anything. <laughs> yeah. I think YouTube's I, pretty friendly, though. YouTube is... I've used... I, back when we were starting, I used YouTube all the time. It was... It was <laughs> made things a lot easier. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I watched a couple of videos on how to paint corners. Uh, man, I can, I can paint like an expert now, and I can do it pretty quick. You know, I, I, I think that as your business grows and as you continue to invest, that's not going to scale. You know, you're not going to be able to do everything and be everywhere. But, but early on, you know, you need to be prepared to, to invest in, invest your own time, not just your money in, in a property. And it also gives you experience on how to do things. Yeah. And it also yeah. gives you experience on what, what things are worth. You know, right. you know what a contractor is going to pay you to paint. You know, if you do get somebody to repaint the property and they're going to tell you it's going to be five grand, you're like, well, you know, I can do that in 35 hours myself. And I can do it for 500 bucks worth of paint. So I think your price is a little bit steep. And then, you know, <laughs> and then you kind of know what's fair and you kind of know, uh, you know, what, what the market rate's going to look like. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's also a big thing. So tell us a little bit more about Neighborly. We haven't really touched on it yet, but, uh, but you do have a great company here, Neighborly. What, what's it all about? Yeah, so uh, basically, neighborly, we're rifle focused on solving one problem in the the real estate or rent tech space, and that's tenant screening. And, and we're at the point now where we say we can do it basically better than anyone else on the planet, uh, because we've developed about 22 patentable technologies to to actually help landlords uh, let to let landlords know exactly who they're renting to before they move in. So essentially, what neighborly has done is it's recreated credit reporting. Um, we use a new algorithm and, and a new series of statistical tools and mathematics combined with artificial intelligence and machine learning to let you know exactly who that tenant is. Um, so we do social media analysis. We look at people's financials. We still pull credit, but we look at it very differently because we know that credit is not always a great indicator of, of tenant quality. Um, we also, we'll look at you know criminal record checks, background checks. We search external media. We do reference calls on your behalf, and it costs about twenty five bucks. Uh, and most of the time, the, the tenant's the actual actually the one who pays it. So we charge the same price as a typical consumer credit report, and we we deliver these results usually within under under thirty five minutes to the landlord, so that you guys don't have to actually do a lot of that legwork and that due diligence yourself. And the results we've seen has basically been a about a 87% reduction in late rent payments, uh, 89% reduction in evictions, and uh, simultaneously seeing about a 30% increase in the length of tenancy 
and 67% increase in the recurrence of lease renewals. So we're helping landlords, property managers, and then a larger stage uh, real estate investment trusts improve their portfolio performance by weeding out some of the, the higher risk tenants. You know, that sounds really interesting. And thankfully, I haven't had to replace any tenants uh, lately, but uh, I plan on hopefully looking at neighborly next time I do. I wanted to just interject real quick and ask you a question because here's something I find that a lot of people get stuck on. Can you explain your comment there that tenant credit is not be all end all? Because a lot of people going into this kind of thing, especially new landlords, probably do think that that is the main key point. Well, I think it's all about context. You know, and, and one thing I, I want to quickly just talk on that you, you mentioned there, you know, you haven't had to refill your your properties in a while. And that's that's one thing that's unique about our business is that when we do our job right, we don't see our customer. We don't refill that vacancy for two or three years. And so in that sense, you know, we have to have a product that works, that, that keeps people coming back. And, and so I'm really excited that we do have that. Um, in terms of the credit thing, you know, credit is really based on, on people's financeability. And credit is used... It's kind of like a hammer in the toolbox. You know, you can you can use a hammer for a lot of things. It's not always the best tool, um, but you know, you're using credit to to determine if somebody can get a credit card. You're using credit to determine if somebody can get a phone account, um, if somebody can get a mortgage, if somebody can get a car loan. The difference between all of those things that I just talked about is that compared to renting, is that housing and having a place to live is a human right, and every single person on the planet needs to have that. The idea that there is this ideal perfect candidate or perfect path to having a place to live, I think is is inherently flawed. And that's kind of our thesis when we went into redeveloping this. Um, you know, and, and I think that there's kind of a lot of fallacies that, that landlords see around tenant selection. You know, I use my dad as an example because he was a landlord for 25 years. You know, in that period of time, he would screen maybe two or three tenants a year because he only had a couple of properties. And you know, he didn't really have this great, he didn't have a great process and he didn't really have a ton of experience in tenant screening. 25 years experience, maybe he, he screened 200 tenants. Um, but, but the issue there is that, you know, you kind of have these like rules of thumb. Well, if they wear their shoes in the property, they're probably going to cause property damage and they're not going to be a good tenant. If they show up late for the interview, they're going to be a bad tenant. If their car is dirty, they're going to be a bad tenant. And the biggest one is, you know, if they have bad credit, they're going to be a bad tenant. But the thing is, is that good credit is actually fairly rare. Most people are average and a lot of people are bad. But the th when you look at tenant quality, 90% of tenants just chosen based on the gut instinct of a landlord will be successful tenants for that property. 90%. So credit doesn't accurately represent tenant quality. Judging somebody based on their ability to pay their phone bill or they miss a phone bill two times when they're 22 years old that's, you know, that's a problem. It, when you look at Canada, we're, we're growing. We have so many people coming in from international places. They don't have an, a, lot, a lot of credit. And a lot of them have very bad credit because it's just getting established. Same thing with university students. Those two groups tend to be incredible landlord, uh, incredible tenants on average. They're hardworking. They don't, they make their rent payments and, and they don't typically live beyond their means. And, and that's the kind of stuff you start to look for. And the other problem with credit, just in general, and I'll, I'll, I won't go too far into this, but credit uses the idea of static data. It's, it's information that is not changing. It's, it's you know, your payment history from three years ago. It's the information that your bank sends. It's information on any collections. If you get a bunch of parking tickets, they might send it to collections. You get bad credit. The dynamic data that really is relevant 
is the information that the tenant gives you in the application form. How many children do they have? What type of vehicle do they drive? Where do they work? How long have they worked at that place? Then going and looking at their, their previous work experience and looking at their previous employment uh, or their previous uh, addresses. How long did they live at those places? Free, uh, you know, and, and, and is that normal or is that above average? Or, or how do you contextualize that? That's the kind of stuff we do. So we go beyond just a simple credit score or a simple neighborly score. We can actually tell you accurately the likelihood of the person being evicted, the likelihood of them causing property damage, the likelihood of them... Uh, causing an early vacancy or leaving the, the property early, not due to uh, eviction, but but because they get a job offer or something like that. We look at employment and income stability, and we can score them on it. We look at macroeconomic trends. We score their social media accounts. We look at pet liability. You know, So you get a full picture and, and full context of who a person is and what's going to happen in this situation so that you can make an informed decision. Um, and, and, you know, and we're charging the same price as what a, a property uh, or as what the credit bureau is charging. And I think that's why it's really compelling. Well, it does sound like a really interesting service, and I am looking forward to uh, checking it out. Hopefully not soon, but, you know, for sure at some point. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry for hijacking that for, for an explanation on uh, tenant credit as well. You've been involved in a lot of, a lot of different companies, uh, Dylan. What's next on the horizon for you? You know, for us, it's really focusing on neighborly. We're experiencing tremendous growth. We're at 500,000 rental units under management now. So we are quickly taking the Canadian market. We've been expanding in the U.S. aggressively. We have some partnerships that are happening in Europe, uh, Berlin, Singapore, Hong Kong. We just closed a big deal with Equifax. So Equifax is now referring us all uh small and independent landlord business in Canada wow. and we're going to be the primary service provider for them. Um, so we're, we're, you know, really just trying to expand the company, expand the product and, and really just do what we do best, which is, which is tenant screening. Uh, we also have partnerships with, uh, rent moolah. Um, we're looking at dealing a deal with Evercondo, Aptex. So we're, we're growing incredibly. We're going to double the team over the next six months. And, you know, basically all of my time is kind of getting sucked up from that. So, Anything outside of neighborly is kind of, uh, except my wife, is kind of on the back burner, but that, that's really what we want to do. I think it's fitting that a uh, Canadian tech company is called neighborly, and I think that we can, you know, as a Canadian company, and uh, the fact that there is such a large global opportunity, I think that we can be this exceptional tech firm from Canada. I think that we can be world class, and I think that we can, we can grow into a, you know, multi-billion dollar company because the market is large enough. And we are one of the first people here. So, yeah, that's really exciting. Congratulations on all the success. Yeah, it's definitely been a it's been a wild summer. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, you know, we're also doing a ton of not just from the business perspective. We are doing a ton of product development. You know, we are trying to make our product always better, more accurate, and improve the user experience of not only the tenant but the landlord as well. Can you tell the people listening how to get in touch with Neighborly? Yeah, so our website is uh, neighborly.co, N-A-B-O-R-L-Y.co. Uh, you can sign up online. Really reasonable membership rates for independent landlords, uh, medium-sized enterprises, and large-scale property management companies. We've got a really good community section where we have you know excellent uh, excellent guest posts from from industry leaders talking about not only just tenant screening but but other things that are affecting. Uh, the, the real estate market, the rental economy, you know, and so we try and we really want to be a thought leader in the space and, and, you know, help landlords, whether it's their first property or their 
50,000th property, making better decisions and improving their business. Well, we really do appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your landlord-tenant knowledge as well as all of your uh, company information about Neighborly. Thanks again. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot myself. I, I brought a bunch of my own personal questions in this time, which I don't do very often, but I guess it felt suiting today. So thanks for helping me sort of sort those out in my head and uh, appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Uh, Sandy, do you want to tell people how to get in touch with you? Uh, sure, yeah. If anyone wants to reach out and, and uh, wants some help over here in the Hamilton area, I uh, can reach out to me on my uh, my uh, direct lines, 416-567-3866. Don't hesitate to give us a call. And people can reach me at 289-927-0464, as well as anyone can reach us at our email for the show. It is info at breakthroughreipodcast.ca. Have a great day, everybody.